welcome to the Wanting to Wealthy podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hogan. As someone who grew up in a pretty scarce environment and came out of college with a lot of debt, stuff, and insecurity, I thought that was just the lot I had to deal with in life. After several years of this, I decided that there had to be another way and gave away over half of my stuff, started working on my debt, and began looking at things through a lens that focused on my values and not what I thought others thought I should be doing. This podcast is all about the journey that happens from wanting to wealthy, and I'm so glad you decided to be part of it. Thank you to all of my current and future Patreon supporters. Patreon tiers start as little as a dollar a month, and depending on the tier you choose, you can get discounts to upcoming events and workshops, as well as being part of the community of individuals and families working to change their money story through actions, support, and accountability. If you're ready to become a Patreon member, go to patreon.com slash wanting to wealthy. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I had every intention of waiting until April to start my um, podcast back up, but in light of the uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse, uh, I realized that most of us use the banking system in some way or another, but we don't always understand how it works. And um, so I wanted to go into that because there's a lot of like fear mongery things going on and a lot of, oh, you know, every the, the economy was going to crash if the Biden administration didn't bail us out and on and on and on. And it's like, it's not really it other than producing enough fear that people thought that that was what was going to happen and they were going to pull their money out of the banking system and that would have eventually if enough of us did that with a large enough sum of money that could have caused an issue but that's that's it's not nearly as simple as that. Um, I'll talk about it later, but I think the statistic for um, the average people's deposits in the United States, so from all the people in the United States who have a bank account, our average amount in that bank account is like $4,500. So yeah, if a 100,000 people pull $4,500, out of the banking system, you think that's a lot of money, but it's really not as much as you would think. Um, it's only $450 million. Like there are people that own more money than that. Like a lot of people who own more money than that by themselves. Like that's one big person pulling out. Like, <laughs> and even if we go into the millions of people pulling their $4,500 out, it's still not going to like be nearly as nasty as what they're saying, especially when you include like insurance in it. So I'm going to give you a quick disclaimer. The disclaimer is, is that I'm not an attorney, not a CPA. Um, I am a financial professional. Professional. I'm an instructor for corporate finance, for accounting, for bookkeeping, things like that. Um, but I'm not the be all end all here. And I would love for you to check out my resources that are in my show notes and um, do your own research, talk to your own banking institution, and learn more about what's actually happening 
with our with our money, like things that we just don't think about. So I'm going to first start with the difference between for-profit banks and non-profit or not-for-profit, that term's used interchangeably, but it's not the same thing, uh, credit unions, okay? So what happened with Silicon Valley bank collapse is it's a for-profit bank, okay? So anything that's for-profit, any company, so think our big box stores, think um, uh, anything on the New York Stock Exchange, things like that, those are for-profit companies. They're there, with the sole purpose of turning a profit for their shareholders. Their shareholders are not necessarily their customers. So in the banking industry, their customers are the people who bank there. That's not their top priority in the same way that a large banking or a large uh, corporation like, oh, Amazon, their first priority is not the customer that buys one or two things from them every week. That's not the person that they're going to care about the most. What their job is, is to increase that shareholder value and that dividend that they're giving to the shareholders year over year. And there's a lot, like I teach a 10 week course on it at the community college level um, on corporate finance. There's a lot that goes into it when you look at the economy, when you look at banking, when you look at um, what what's happening with interest rates, like there's a lot. But if you think of for-profit, so banks, if they have the word bank in their name, they are for-profit. They're there to turn a profit for their shareholders. They're not there in your best interest necessarily, unless you're one of their shareholders. Um, and you're not their pro top priority if you're banking with them. This also goes for community banks. So um, the major difference between what we call the big banks and the community banks are that the community banks are there. Um, are, you may actually know some of the owners. They're typically, um, there's a combination. They can be publicly or privately held, but because they're small, they might have only five or 10 locations they're in your community. So generally speaking, their owners live in your community. So if their owners make money, ideally they would then be spending money in your community versus big banks are generally owned by investment firms and things like that. They're not keeping the money in your community necessarily. So how are these banks becoming profitable? What are they doing to make the money, okay? Okay, so to make the money, you put money in your bank account. It's not like there's thousands and thousands of bank accounts sitting there with physical $4,500 for this person, $10,000 for this person, and $1.2 for this person. It's not the way it works. They, a lot, they give you like a, hey, I know that we owe you $5,000 because that's how much you deposited minus transactions you have and whatnot. And they put that in a pool that they then lend to other people. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they take your money in, they give you like a quarter of a percent in interest. Mind you, inflation was 7.1 last year. So you were losing like six and three quarters of a percent of interest. And I'm not even going to get to inflation right now, but they give you a quarter of a percent of interest. Then they lend the money that you put in their hands 
to other people or to you in the form of car loans, mortgages, personal lines of credit, home equity lines of credit, credit cards, business loans at higher rates. House loans are like closer to five, six, seven percent right now. Car loans can range anywhere from like a percent and a half all the way up to 10 or 15 or 20 percent. So they are making money on the difference between how much they're giving you that quarter of a percent and how much they're charging someone else to use that money. Okay. So that's how they get 90% of their money. Um, on top of that, they can make money by uh, charging banking fees, overdraft fees, non-sufficient fund fees, financial services like um, financial coaching or debt consolidation, closing fees on loans. Um, but again, the, the largest source of the money uh, that they're making is generally on that difference in interest between what they're giving you versus what they charge for lending money to others. Okay. So on the other hand, so that's banks. On the other hand, we can look at credit unions. Credit unions, again, are either nonprofit or not-for-profit. When I was doing my research, like they were using the words interchangeably, but these terms are technically different. So look at your specific credit union, figure out which one they are calling themselves. Okay. Um, so credit unions are member of. And that means that the people who bank there are also the owners. So some credit unions might charge like a $10 member fee when you first come become a, a um, member. Uh, you are essentially buying a share in that credit union. They operate like big banks, okay? So while they operate like big banks in that they can earn money in all the same ways, the difference is, is that because their responsibility is to their members and not outside shareholders, they spend that money differently. So federal credit unions are not subject to the same tax laws, 501c1 status, so it's specific to those credit unions. Banks are for-profit, they still are taxed in the same way. State-sanctioned credit unions are subject to laws within that state, and they are generally required to operate without a profit and for the mutual benefit of their members. So you'll see credit unions doing member outreach. They'll do free um, financial coaching. They'll do these types of things because it's free to you because it benefits you and they can then pay their employees to um, provide those services. Um, but with the goal there is that, that the money is not distributed to shareholders, but it's kept local and it's kept there for the people who are also putting their money into the bank. Okay, so a couple of definitions that I want to mention. In the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, they've talked about FDIC. So, or you'll hear that in commercials, they'll say member FDIC. So what they are for banks is they're, uh, they are FDIC insured. So it's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It's an independent agency that create, that was created by Congress to maintain stability and public confidence in the nation's financial system. As we know, we've had financial cra crashes in the past. A lot 
I don't know the stat. I'm not going to say a lot. There has been an amount of those financial crises that have been related to for-profit banks not doing a good job of managing their uh, depositors' money. Okay, so what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is they had, I don't know all the ins and outs and details of the bank, what caused the collapse itself, but where people got really worried is many of their depositors had more than $250,000 in the bank. FDIC only insures each depositor in each insured bank for each ownership category up to $250,000. So most of us, as we've already established, do not have $250,000 in the bank. We don't have $250,000 to our name. Okay, so um, why is this relevant? A couple of things. One, in the past when we've bailed out, when we've seen uh, bailouts done, they're also bailing out uh, employees and shareholders and things like that. They didn't do that this time. Two, legally, they only have to give $250,000 to each person who had money deposited there up to that amount. So if they had a million dollars, legally they only have to do up to 250,000. Now, they covered it and it's not coming out of taxpayers' money. It's coming out of the FDIC Insurance Corporation. Um, the way, brief thing on the way insurance work is again, we all pay our premiums, we all pay into it with the idea that um, only a few of us are actually going to need to use those resources so they invest it so they can then earn some interest on it to then be able to um, pay things out. So FDIC is what's paying out these um, depositors for the bank, uh, for the Silicon Valley Bank collapse specifically. Um, and the government didn't have to ask them to bail out above at the 250,000, but they did, which is cool. I also really appreciate that they didn't bail out shareholders and things like that because that information is public record on how and what they're doing to invest their money. So as long as it wasn't being shrouded in some way, totally could have been seen by the public records that are placed each year for publicly held for-profit companies, okay? So, I'm going back to that four hundred, that forty five hundred dollars. The average amount in our bank accounts for the average American is only forty five hundred dollars. In fact, when I was looking this up, it said like forty two percent of Americans have that have a bank account have less than a thousand dollars in their bank account. So this doesn't affect ninety nine percent of us, and I get that. What I wanted to address here was. You being informed of the difference between a bank and a credit union, what the insurance policies are doing, that's FDIC and NCUA, which I'll talk about in a second, and giving you a pros and cons list between banks and credit unions so you may make the most informed decision that you are able to, given the circumstances surrounding the situation. Okay, so the next... Uh, 
insurance company is the National Credit Union Administration. It's the NCUA. You'll see that um, most federally insured uh, or federally backed credit unions. This is also an independent federal agency that insures deposits at the federally insured credit unions and protects the members who own the credit unions. Remember, for credit unions, if you're a depositor, you're a member and charters and regulates federal credit unions. They also cover up to $250,000 per depositor per institution. Okay, so that doesn't change. They're both insured. If the credit union is not federally sanctioned, it's state sanctioned, it should have private insurance uh, company backing up this amount of money. So if you're in a credit union that is not a member of the NCUA, make sure that there is a federal or that there is a private insurance policy in place in case their uh, bank was to collapse or excuse me, in case their credit union was to collapse um, that you would still get your money back out. Okay. So I know I gave you a bunch of information and I know we're not all um, banking and insurance experts, but the conclusion to all of this is there should not be a reason to panic. The number of things I've seen on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, let alone getting on any news site, is that for some reason we're concerned, the politicians specifically are very concerned about us all just yanking our money out of the banking system. I feel like it's fear-mongering. That's my opinion. I don't appreciate that, that they're like spazzing out over this. Like there were some serious problems, obviously. It's really cool that they um, that they insured the full amount that was deposited. But that also shows me that people who uh, were banking there and had more than $250,000 in the banks were not being given the best advice, either by their bankers, general knowledge, what have you, that they had so much money in that individual bank in the first place. And I understand that that particular bank works with a lot of startup companies, but diversification is key. It's the same reason that in several of my episodes, I've talked about diversification of income, diversification of where we're putting savings, um, making sure that we have every dollar accounted for and going to someplace specifically. When I talk to my clients, I will put in, okay, I want you to start a savings account for this, 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 and this. Might be that you have eight accounts. Most credit unions are like, cool, you have a savings account. And so let's see, between my husband and I, we have three member numbers. We have our personal, uh, or my personal, his personal joint. My personal has three sub accounts. His personal has uh, two sub accounts and our joint has three sub accounts. And so with that in mind, all of these sub accounts help my brain go, okay, this money in this sub account is for taxes. This money in this sub account is for auto repairs. This money in this sub account is for buying hay for my horses. Like those types of things helps my brain distinguish out. But the total should not exceed $250,000 per banking institution. Go to the bank specifically for those guidelines. Uh, on what the bank will and will not insure. 
get off that soapbox. Okay, so which is best, banks or credit unions? For me personally, I will always go through a credit union um, because of their financial status of being an NPO or a nonprofit organization and their mission statements. Most of their mission statements are focused around benefiting their communities. However, I do understand the need for the use of big banks because of traveling or moving a lot. Or I know when I was in college, I went from using a credit union to using a big bank, which was a ginormous fiasco that cost me a lot of money in the end. And I ended up in a national lawsuit um, with big bank XYZ. Um, but it was so my parents could deposit money at home and I could get it where I was at college. I understand that there is a need for some of those larger um, geographically reaching banks. However, there can be cons as well. So I'm going to give you a couple of pros and cons lists and then I'll stop talking. Pros of the credit union. There's less rigid eligibility requirements. Sometimes they'll even like coach you on how to um, qualify what you need to do to your credit report to qualify for whatever loan you're seeking out. Um, lower interest rates typically. Deposits are insured in the same exact fashion as large banks. And they have greater resources for financial literacy, typically speaking, especially when you can talk one-on-one -on -one and it's typically a free service, okay? Cons of credit unions, limited financial product offerings. They may not be able to do some of the big funky things that the larger banks can do. And they generally have fewer physical branches, right? Um, pros of the banks is that they may have uh, more money to contribute to online apps and tools. Although the credit unions that I've worked with uh, are pretty, pretty, pretty good as well um, on creating those same types of features and uh, tools and features. And then the, the added convenience of them being, you know, typically like nationwide for the large banks. The cons is that they're epically stringent on requirements for bank lending. Um, they have higher interest rates and they typically have more fees. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say. I hope this was an informative kind of conversation, one-sided though it may be. If you have questions, if you don't understand an acronym, if you're trying to figure out why things happen the way they happen, please DM me or tag me on Instagram and I would be happy to answer those questions for you. I can do an Instagram live. Uh, I really want people to fully understand what they're getting involved in when you're handing an institution all of your money, whether that's a thousand dollars or a million dollars and asking them to take care of it. Thank you so much for supporting myself and the Wanting to Wealthy podcast. For more free content, consider signing up for the monthly newsletter at wantingtowealthy.com slash subscribe. Please share the podcast with someone you think can get value from it and screenshot yourself listening and share it on social media. I would love it if you tag me at Wanting to Wealthy when you do. If you are ready to take the next step for yourself and your financial journey, become a community member at patreon.com slash wanting to wealthy. 
Wanting to Wealthy podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by myself, Ashley Hogan.